You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to MidtownColumbia.com. Uh, my name is Brandon. If I haven't met you yet, welcome. Uh, we are kicking off our fall series today, uh, as you just saw in uh, the video, and we have some, some pretty big ideas to set up today. Uh, you will need what we covered today to properly interpret the rest of the series. So if you're not here today, please make sure you catch the podcast, okay? If you're not in this room, be sure to catch the podcast. Open up your Bibles to the book of Matthew. You'll notice I do not have a passage at this point because we are going to skip all over Matthew today. It'll be a little more survey style today, so it would help if you have a paper Bible today. So what that means is if you normally read on your phone while you switch back and forth between Instagram during the sermon, don't do that today. <laughs> Instead, pick up a paper Bible and follow along in the paper Bible. And as you're turning to the book of Matthew, uh, I'd love to, to pray for our time this morning. So pray with me, please. Uh, Father, thank you for the privilege of getting to gather this morning as your church as a local body of believers, and uh, thank you for your word that, that grounds us in your truth and in your reality. And I pray uh, that your Holy Spirit would speak this morning in ways that I can't, that you would change hearts and uh, compel and equip in ways that I most certainly can't. So uh, please speak and work supernaturally through your word. We love you. Amen. Amen. So Matthew is the first book of the New Testament, and it introduces us to Jesus in the context of history. And we'll start in chapter 1, verse 1. And by the end, we'll make our way through the very end of the book. So you guys settle in, okay? <laughs> Just kidding. It won't take that long. Verse one, chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So here's what Matthew is doing and why it's important. This is placing the person of Jesus in the context of the whole Bible. And it's also saying Jesus has always been the plan. Always, ever since the beginning. And the Old Testament tells us that God created the world perfectly. And the first humans were fountains of joy and peace until the deceiver came and tricked them into declaring independence from God. He gets them to disobey him and therefore leave God's kingdom and declare themselves the rulers of their own kingdom. And it turns out the kingdom they set up was not so great after all. It got dark quickly. Adam and Eve's son killed his brother out of jealousy. It was the very first murder in human history. And then by Genesis 6, it says the wickedness of man had grown so much that God said literally, quote, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Quite depressing. It gives us this picture that humanity, this prized and miraculous line of beings that were created in God's own image, had been ruined. We'd been corrupted and marred and broken in ways that we had no hope of fixing on our own. Now, we're still created in God's image, which means that we might still do some things that we might think of as comparatively good, better than others, but in comparison to what we were designed to be, we as a species had been ruined. This is the historical and biblical explanation for what you see when you turn on the news each day. And you see all the horrors that we commit against one another. This also explains the worst things that you've ever done and the worst things that have been done to you. We have deep foundational cracks in our nature. 
And in chapter 12 of Genesis, God goes to a man named Abraham, and he says, through you, I'm going to bless all nations of the earth. And the rest of the Old Testament is that story, how God started to call a people to himself and give them guidelines for how to live under his authority, how to atone for their sins. And it's a difficult story that you can actually trace through the lineage outlined in Matthew chapter 1. And the whole time, through all of these names that you can barely pronounce in Matthew chapter 1, they know that God has promised that someone is coming, a Messiah or a Savior King, to truly and finally fix everything that we ruined by sin. Now let's jump to Matthew uh, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Flip over a page or two. In chapter 3, Jesus is about to begin his earthly ministry, and John the Baptist, his cousin, is actually preaching. And the theme of his preaching is recorded in the beginning two verses of chapter 3. It says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What you'll see throughout the book of Matthew is that the primary theme is the kingdom of heaven. This idea that God is actually king and he's restoring his good rule and reign to fix the ruined state of human nature. He's bringing his rule down here. And since ancient kings were concerned with lineage, the book of Matthew starts with one as the first step in the argument that Jesus is king of heaven and earth. He's warning everyone that the time they had been waiting on since Abraham is now here. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Messiah is here, and the rule and reign of God is about to break into earth. And ruined, sinful humans are going to be grafted into this kingdom where they'll be redeemed and remade into the indwelled by God humans they were designed to be. So Jesus asked John the Baptist to baptize him, and the Holy Spirit descended like a dove and came to rest on him. And God the Father speaks from heaven and says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So even there we see heaven is breaking in to earth. Flip over to Matthew 4, 17 through 20. When Jesus starts his public ministry, this theme continues. I'll draw your attention to verse uh, 17 which says, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I told you that we'd see a theme here. Jesus intends to be about bringing heaven to earth. And the very next thing he does after this is very important because what he does next sets the stage for the rest of his ministry and gives insight into the kind of king Jesus is and how his kingdom will spread. Verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. So I want you to stay with me here. A, a few things are clarified for the original audience in this passage. The first is that in Jewish tradition, Jesus is actually stepping into the role of a rabbi. The rabbi was a professional teacher in Judaism who would spend his life studying the scriptures, and he developed a teaching that he integrated all of his insights into uh, that he called his yoke. His yoke. And the way a rabbi spread his teachings was through calling disciples to follow him so he could teach them and also model for them the lived out effects of his teaching. Now, when I was in college, I thought that someone discipling you meant that you met at Starbucks every week or so and they asked you questions about the Bible and dealing with lust and sin and stuff. That is not what a first century disciple was. 
Rabbis and their disciples had their lives intertwined in ways that would seem unreasonable and probably even creepy to us right now. They spent almost every waking hour together. They studied together. They lived together. They worked together. They did everything together. And theologian Ray Vanderlaan says, uh, talks about an old Jewish blessing that went like this. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. May you follow him so closely that his dust literally is all over you because you're walking through these first century deserts. And you begin to look more and more like him. It was the idea of a lifelong apprentice And this life transformation happened primarily through two things, teaching and practice. So the rabbi would say, hey, you've heard this, but I tell you this. He invited his disciples to trade their old ways of thinking for their old beliefs and ideas for new ones and that our minds need to be trade in falsehoods for truth about God to ever get anywhere. And then secondly, practice. Sometimes this is known as spiritual disciplines, but more practically, we just call them habits. Habits that logically follow and put into practice the new truths that you've oriented your life around such that that truth will transform you from the inside out. So disciples were were called to adopt the teachings of their rabbi and then quite literally adopt his practices. If he fasted, then they fasted. If he withdrew for solitude, they did. Teaching and practice, both are critical. And in my opinion, the church in America... Uh, is all about the teaching, but sometimes has very little practice. So we're set up to create uh, bobblehead Christians who were all head and very little body, very limited implementation and practice of the things that they know. Let's look back at verses 19 and 20 quickly. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. So for a long time, I'll be honest, this struck me as a bit cheesy. Uh, Like Jesus was making a corny dad joke or something. And when I read this passage, I'd just be like, man, Jesus, this this wasn't your finest moment, was it? (laughs) This wasn't your best joke. Like he was saying, you guys are fishing, huh? Well, what if you fished for people? (laughs) And it just kind of struck me as, as corny. But in Jewish context, that was the furthest thing from the truth. In their day, this was a moving, meaningful thing to the point that these guys immediately got up and left their occupation and followed a rabbi they had just met. And it's actually a reference to Jeremiah 16, where God is discussing how he had scattered the nation of Israel to exile because of their disobedience. But there would come a day where he sent out fishermen to reel them back in and restore his rule among them. So what these guys heard when Jesus said this line was, hey, come announce the end of Israel's exile and prepare for the Messiah King to reign. So being a fisher of men meant to capture the minds and hearts of other men, to be fashioned into a compelling, head-turning, remade human who is a part of God's restoration, bringing his kingdom back to earth. Where others look at you and what you're becoming and think, I'm not that, but I think somewhere deep down I was made to be that. It was a vision big enough for them to give their lives to, and they did. 
True to the theme of Matthew, they responded to him as if he was king, immediately and happily. And then chapters 5 through 7, Jesus preaches his first and most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. It's a master course of a rabbi giving his yoke or his teaching. And over and over, Jesus says, you've heard this, but I tell you this. He talks about anger and lust and divorce and retaliation and loving your enemies and fasting and worry and morality and money. And over and over, he says, this is true, so do this, teaching and practice. And in chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, he's teaching on the practice of prayer. And he says this, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So again, this is the aim. God, keep bringing your kingdom here in all the ways that we are deformed. And all the ways our world is broken, bring all of us and all of this that is bent and chaotic from sin and restore your rule and reign here. And as you move out of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, you continue to see that King Jesus has the authority to do all of that. He can do and did do what he taught us to pray for. He has authority to forgive sins and cast out demons and he heals the sick and the paralyzed and the leper and the dead. And then we get to Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 through 38. In the middle of all of that work he's doing, he includes a moving picture here. Starting in verse 35, it says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So the word for compassion there means to be moved deeply in your gut. That's what happens when that knot forms in your stomach and, and tears start to build in your eyes. And this rabbi king looked out at the crowds who he saw as harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, and his gut was moved. And he said, get this, to his disciples, to those who were being trained through teaching and practice to be like him and do what he did. And he says, hey, there aren't enough of us. There aren't enough. The need out there is plentiful, and the disciples, the workers are few. So pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out more disciples. That all of those helpless people, those racked by sin and deformed spiritually and physically and emotionally and mentally, otherwise known as you and me, what they need most is not any number of things you might think. A lot of things might be helpful to them, but what they need most is for a disciple of Jesus who more and more so looks and acts like him to post up beside them and show them what it looks like for a deformed human to trust in Jesus, to follow the teachings of Jesus, to renew their minds and orient their lives around the habits of Jesus. This is the plan of the rabbi king to bring grace and forgiveness and his kingdom to earth and remake deformed humanity. This is how the harvest will happen, how the kingdom will spread. 
And through the rest of Matthew, Jesus continues to display his authority over sin and every evil that attacks us, everything that fights to ruin our souls. And he eventually enters Jerusalem where they expected an earthly military king to free them from Roman oppression. And then it becomes clear that Jesus is not interested in overthrowing oppression as they define it, but in overthrowing oppression as he defines it, which is sin. And the same people who put down palm branches to welcome their king in a week before now demand that he be crucified. And Pilate actually asks Jesus if he indeed claims to be king of the Jews, which would be seen as a threat to his rule. And Jesus says, you have said so. And still, Pilate likes him and doesn't see a reason to kill him. But a riot almost breaks out, so Pilate eventually hands Jesus over to the crowd. And Roman soldiers put a scarlet robe on him, and they twist a crown of thorns on his head, and they kneel before him and mock him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spit on this king and beat this king. And then they led him to a cross where he was nailed to it and hung for hours on this medieval torture device before he died. It was a sadly ironic coronation for a king. But this first century rabbi king who claimed to have all authority on heaven and earth, he died, but he did not stay dead. Amen? Three days later, he rose from the dead to defeat the power of sin and death over us. And after he rose from the dead, right before he ascends to heaven, he gathered all of his disciples, his apprentices to himself, and these were his parting words at the very end of Matthew chapter 28. Verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. That's one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible there. These guys watched him heal the sick and raise the dead and walk on water. They saw him die, and now he's standing there alive talking to them. And he's about to float up into heaven in front of their faces. And a few of them are going, I don't know, man. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm convinced yet. Verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So do you remember back in chapter four when he told them he was gonna make them fishers of men? He was not kidding. That is the end game. That's his plan. He looks at the ones he spent countless hours with teaching and training them, and he says, now you go. Make disciples, make others who look like you do now. Baptize them as they repent of their sin and trust God alone for salvation. And, and don't just meet with them at Starbucks occasionally, but teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. Teach them to do what I did, what I taught you. And in all of this, I am with you always. I will empower you through my Holy Spirit. You will never make disciples alone. This is King Jesus's plan. And he was a king unlike any they had ever seen, who brings his kingdom not through force or military might or manipulation, but through compelling, spirit-empowered disciples. 
through remaking deformed humans into compelling people that more and more so look and act like him. And in doing so, they would catch the minds and imaginations of others and the kingdom would spread coming down from heaven to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and eventually Asia and Europe and Sudan and South Carolina too. And if Jesus' plan for bringing his kingdom was compelling people, that's going to be our plan too. We don't want to stray too far from his plan. His plan is our plan. His primary plan in his ministry was not to create compelling events for people to come to. It was to create compelling people. Compelling men and women and children who were disciples and spirit-empowered, who actually followed him and did the things he commanded them to do. His plan is our plan. So our plan for making Columbia look a little bit more like heaven every day is compelling people. Compelling disciples who are covered in his dust. Individuals who are being changed by God slowly and intentionally over time through teaching and practice. Your life being changed by Jesus is our plan. My life being changed by Jesus is our plan. So what that means is that all of our chips are pushed in for us learning how to follow Jesus together and becoming compelling disciples that look like him. And this is not a rhetorical question. I want you to answer it. If that doesn't happen, will our church work? No, it won't. And honestly, none of us are charismatic enough to build a church another way. And that is actually a blessing because we are disinterested in being a successful church that isn't making disciples. We don't care to be about that. This is the purpose behind everything that we do. This is why we do life groups how we do them. This is why we do classes the way we do. This is why we do Kid Town the way we do it, and even gatherings the way that we do them. Like, we love preaching good sermons, and we try really hard to do that, but every sermon can't be a home run. Some are like solid base hits at best, right? And if you think everyone should be a home run, you should try doing this for a while. (laughs) But our end goal for Sundays and sermons is not for you to go to work on Monday and say to your coworker, man, my pastor is great. You have to listen to this sermon. That would be cool if you did. We won't stop you. And it might make our Monday sermon hangover a little brighter. But that's not our strategy. Eye-popping sermons are not the plan. Eye-popping people are the plan. You guys are the plan. The plan is over time, over weeks and months and years of your commitment here as we follow Jesus together, that you would become the type of person who turns your coworker's head on Monday. Because they see that you are covered in the dust of someone they can't quite place. But it's really compelling to them. The role of gatherings and sermons is that you consistently put yourself under the teachings of God's word and you tune your heart to worship him above all else and you submit yourself to a real local body of believers with real strengths and real weaknesses for the long haul under the authority of leaders who will shepherd you very imperfectly but faithfully and that Sunday by Sunday over time God shapes you into the kind of person who would capture the attention of those around you. So this sermon may not change the course of your life. 
This gathering may not be an unforgettable experience, but over time, they most certainly will be. They will affect your life in incremental ways and build up like compound interest as you hear the teachings of Jesus and learn to follow him in practice. And to put it in crass-sounding business terms, our people are our brand. For better or for worse, right? Our people are our brand. Our model is not that us pastors will be the professional missionaries and our job is to entertain you guys and try to keep you inspired enough to stick around. Our job is to train and equip hundreds of missionaries to be disciples all over our city. But that ultimately is contingent on you taking responsibility for your own growth. You have to own that. We can't do that for you. Other people, the other members of your group, and your pastors are certainly here to help, but your growth is your responsibility. Who you are at your job is your responsibility. Who you are in your neighborhood is your responsibility. Your health and your ongoing maturity, they are yours. No one can own those but you. And our church rises and falls based on us owning the responsibility for our own growth. So as a whole, as a church, what we care about most is quality. We measure success ultimately not through numbers, but through life change and maturity and slow, progressive sanctification over time. But because we care about quality, we also care about quantity. We want lots of quality. We want the harassed and helpless crowds to meet King Jesus. But the people who need to be fished for don't know what that's what they need. So they are in all likelihood not going to wander in here on a Sunday morning. They're spiritually sick, but they don't know it yet. They're doing everything our culture tells them to do. So how are they supposed to know that they're doing the exact things that lead to their destruction? Like Romans 10 says, how will they know unless someone tells them? But they live beside you. They work beside you. Their kids go to school with your kids and they grocery shop beside you. And you'll have limited time and limited opportunities to be a part of shaping what they think about God and being used as an instrument where God actually might make his appeal through your life. So on Tuesday at the soccer field, on Wednesday after the board meeting, huddled in the hallway, on Monday at lunch, on Friday as you work on that project together and talk about life, they will be a witness to the effect that King Jesus of Nazareth has or has not had on your life. They'll be a witness to the kind of person you are becoming and, and who you've been discipled by most, Jesus or our culture. The people around you are going to see whose dust you are most covered in. They're going to see that, whether it's Jesus or your political party or your favorite uh, non-Christian blogger or your go-to YouTube channel or one of the many cultural rabbis here that think the biggest problem in your life is that you haven't gotten free enough of all the constraints that are keeping you from being fully you. And if you're covered in the dust of anyone else than Jesus, your life will not have an uncommon, supernatural, compelling quality to it that his did. Instead, it'll be predictable, basic in the most culturally conforming way possible. Just like how basic white girl became a meme, you'll be a basic secular American. 
Speaking of that, it's kind of a trend now for uh, famous Christians to deconvert and say they aren't Christians anymore. Uh, if you follow these kind of things, Joshua Harris is the latest deconvert. And when that happens in our culture, you don't have to wonder what they believe now, right? You don't have to wonder. It's the most predictable routine imaginable because they are covered in the dust of our culture. They get swallowed by it. So that should be a warning to us that if you are covered in the dust of anyone else besides Jesus, there will be no mysterious source of spiritual power. Just the same old parroted lines that everyone else bases their lives on that leave us all disconnected and depressed and without lasting meaning. To put it in a different way, you'll have some, some decorative Christian elements in your life. There'll be a few things that differentiate you from others around you, but the, at the end of the day, your life will look way more similar to theirs than it looks different. Way more similar to a secular American than it looks different. And Jesus was never interested in cultural nominal disciples, so neither are we. There's no power or life there. So in our membership covenant, if you're not familiar, we have uh, outlined in a very generic way what this type of disciple looks like. What it looks like when a person follows Jesus here today. And this is just a start. You could certainly add other things to this list for sure. But here is a, a starting list of things that uh, our missionary members, uh, those who have agreed to be official missionary members with us, have agreed to as we follow Jesus together. We've recently done a small language update, but the principles haven't changed in years. So I just want to go over these briefly with you. They'll be on the screen. These are the covenant practices our missionary members have agreed to. First one, abiding in Jesus connects us to him as the source of life as he produces fruit in us. Therefore, I commit to the consistent disciplines of meditating on God's word and prayer. Community offers us the invitation and challenge to be more like Jesus as we grow in faith together. Therefore, I commit to actively and intentionally be in a life group so that I am a part of a community that follows Jesus together. Confession of sin to God and others exposes areas of guilt, shame, and brokenness in our lives. Repentance turns us from, from sin to Jesus' love so that we obey him through the power of the Spirit. Therefore, I commit to confession and repentance, fully expecting and welcoming correction from church family. Mission brings the kingdom of heaven here on earth through communities of Jesus-centered followers marked by faith, hope, and love. Therefore, I commit to hospitality and sharing my faith through everything I do by the power of the Spirit. Generosity is giving to God's mission and learning to trust Him more than our wealth. Therefore, I commit to give 10% to the mission of Jesus through Midtown as a starting point for generosity. Serving is a way God works through us to to love others. Therefore, I commit to using my spirit-empowered giftedness to serve our church according to my season of life. And then lastly, our gatherings on Sunday shape us into a people marked by listening to God's word and responding in prayer, worship, generosity, and mission within our spirit-filled community. Therefore, I commit to prioritizing Sunday gathering participation. So this, in a very generic way, is the type of disciples we are trying to create in our church. We believe that us becoming these kinds of people would radically bless our city and bring heaven to Columbia. It's just a starting place to describe the, the kind of disciples we want you as individuals to be. So I'll just end by painting a little bit of this picture and why we think it's so important. 
Uh, the book of Hebrews says that, that Scripture is God-breathed and living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So we want you to be the kind of person who spends the amount of time necessary reading and meditating on Scripture that it actually becomes a part of who you are. That it becomes ingrained in the way you think and the way you respond to situations and people such that you actually appear to be God-breathed and living and active and sharp yourself. But it's really just Scripture in and through you. But do you know how that will never be true about you? If you are what I call a verse-of-the-day Christian. That's funny, you can laugh about that. Now, for some of you, you aren't even there yet, so it would be progress to get you to read the verse of the day on the Bible app each day. And if that's where you are, I will celebrate that for you. Okay, that's better than nothing for sure. I'll take that. But for the rest of us, if, if the height of your interaction and intake of Scripture is that you pop open your Bible app on your commute and read the verse of the day, you will not have the mysterious power and resources available to you that you would if you were more sufficiently covered in the dust of God's words. You may have some words and phrases, and again, that's better than nothing for sure. But you won't have the constant worldview training and the mega narratives that make sense of all of life. And we want us to become the type of people that have whole stories and whole passages and whole chunks of truth rattling in our hearts and minds as we read the news and watch TV and talk to people about their issues. We want you to be the kind of person who follows Jesus so closely that you can't tell when you start or stop praying. Because for you, praying and thinking have become so intertwined that it's hard to think about someone or something without praying for that person or thing, without asking God for his help and guidance and whatever it is, so that when you're faced with certain conversations or circumstances, you don't even know where it comes from, but you just have words that drip with Holy Spirit wisdom that come out of you that touch and bless others in ways that you can't even explain because you're not the one doing it. But that will never be true about you or about me if every transition moment of our lives is already filled with something else. With a shiny square on your phone or hypothetically for me, your favorite college football team or cares that you repeatedly cast on yourself instead of God or insecure and self-critical thought loops that you're constantly stuck in. That'll never happen. We want you to become the kind of disciple of Jesus who is not surprised when you are wrong. Because you are sometimes, right? You're not surprised when you're in error or in sin, either when you uh, realize it or when someone else points it out to you lovingly. You don't try to defend or, or negate or minimize the ugly truth, but you own it 100% because you know that you are the worst sinner that you know. And you still have a long way to go in your discipleship to Jesus. And there are places in your soul that he's still working on, so you embrace that full on. You repent and confess to God and other believers that love you. We want you to have meaningful relationships that are based not on shared interests or hobbies, but on the blood of Jesus who makes people family. We don't let lesser differences and issues become so big that they cause the reality show drama that we are all prone to. But you forgive one another and love one another and bear with one another just like Jesus does with you. We want you to become uh, 
the type of disciple that continually aligns the broken parts of yourself with God's reality, where your generational and long-standing issues with mental and emotional and relational and spiritual health are exposed, and God invites you to trade out those lies for his truth. And over time, as you intake God's word and pursue God through prayer and community and doing the things that Jesus did and practicing the Sabbath and withdrawing for silence and solitude and fasting, that God actually heals places of your soul that you could not have gotten to any other way. We want your kids to grow up one day and say, man, my grandpa, he had some issues. He was disengaged and passive. He was a destructive man. But my dad, a whole host of generational issues stopped with my dad. He changed the course of generations by letting Jesus change him in difficult ways. That would be really beautiful. But those areas of growth and maturity won't happen without following Jesus and the things that he did. It won't happen if you neglect the role of biblical community and commitment to your group. It won't happen if you do not do the things that Jesus did. You don't get the life of Jesus without the lifestyle of Jesus. That's not how it works. So if Netflix and hobbies take up all the time you have for spiritual practices in your life, then make a home for all of your unhealth because it's not going anywhere. We want you to grow to be generous in your uh, money and time as a missionary, where you decide to leverage the resources God has given you to see more people grow up into this maturity and more people become disciples of Jesus. Or you start to see your time and your home as a resource, a space for doing the things that Jesus did so you can become more like him. We actually want you to become a discerning, winsome truth teller who is equipped with the spiritual maturity and knowledge you need to detect and discern the deceptive and hollow lies that everyone around you is basing their lives on, such that you would have a relationship with someone you work with where they consider the outcome of your way of life and are willing to entertain what you have to say. And when they tell you the things that they're chasing after and that they're just trying to follow their heart, You can look at them in the most loving way possible and say, hey, I love you, but that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Let me tell you where I would be if I followed my heart. It would be a catastrophe. And maybe through that interaction and the Holy Spirit reveals to them that their worldview is built on a false anthropology, a deceptive and untrue idea about human nature itself. And then maybe they become a Christian and they repent of their sinful actions and disordered desires, and they trust Jesus for salvation, and they place themselves under the authority of a rabbi king. And they get baptized at one of our gatherings, and God starts to remake and heal the deformations of soul that wreak havoc on them. And then maybe they become a fisher of men themselves, and then they find five dollars. But hypothetically, and not discounting God's sovereignty, all of that may play out differently if your life and my life are not different enough to be worth considering in the first place. If you are covered in someone else's dust, or if you have neglected coming to gatherings and to have your mind formed and shaped by God's word, and if your heart and affections are shaped by worship, and if you haven't even been a verse of the day Christian recently, so when they say, I'm just following my heart, you in that moment have nothing else more true and compelling to offer them. Or even if you do, you don't have the guts to say it. So we are sold that that all of this is God's plan to bring heaven here. 
So it's going to be our plan too. We're going to take the next seven weeks to dig in on this plan. And this series is going to be a little bit different than many others we do. Uh, This isn't a series about buttoning up right belief. That is certainly crucial, but that's not exactly what we're doing with this. We're digging in on practice here. Uh, And so we want you to think of this series as a a spiritual checkup. Uh, This is a series about who uh, we are as individuals, not necessarily as a collective. It's more personal in nature. It's about our strategy on an individual level and our plan for, for you as an individual and me as an individual. So the questions we're concerned with asking here are, am I actually following Jesus? Am I doing the practices the New Testament teaches me? Am I becoming a compelling person? Or have I drifted to become more of a disciple of my culture or my neighborhood or my political party than I am of Jesus? Whose dust am I most covered in? So for missionary members, this will be a gut check for us because all of these things are uh, something that we signed on and said, yes, I agree to practicing these things as an individual member of our church. So uh, Lord willing, this will reveal if we are doing what we said we would. And for Christians who are not members, it should be very similar uh, for you as well. Uh, For non-Christians, this will give you more insight on what following Jesus as a disciple actually looks like. And we pray that you will do so as a result of hearing the beautiful vision painted. And we don't want the natural tendency of drift to happen in our church. We don't want to drift toward indistinct, meaningless, cultural Christianity. Because that offers no hope to our world. We want to be doing things that actually make a difference in people's lives. So this series is kind of like a form of accountability for us to make sure we're actually doing the things we say we're doing. We want to see Jesus bring his kingdom here, and we know that happens through us becoming the remade, compelling people he's calling us to be. So we'll see you back here next week. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you uh, for not leaving us to our own devices and our rebellion against you, but for uh, instituting a a history-sweeping plan to uh, redeem everything that we broke, broke uh, with our sin and our rebellion. Uh, thank you for uh, starting back uh, in the beginning of the Old Testament and, and shaping a people uh, under yourself to um, show them what it looks like to live under your rule and reign, and um, that all of that culminated in bringing uh, your son Jesus to earth uh, to live a perfect life, uh, that we could not live, to die a sacrificial and atoning death for our sins. Uh, Thank you that you invite us into your kingdom through repentance and grace, uh, that you uh, trade out all of the lies we believe for your truth, uh, that you you teach us what it is like to live under your authority, uh, and you give us practices and habits to to learn to live as you did, to do the things that you did so that we can become uh, remade and renewed disciples. And I know that uh, what our, our city needs most is uh, compelling disciples of Jesus who are covered uh, in his dust. And I know that too often, myself uh, included, that we are uh, covered in the dust of someone else. Uh, we are uh, covered in the dust of uh, our hobbies or our uh, affiliations or our interests or our sports teams or um, whatever else more than we are covered in the dust of Jesus. And Um, And so I pray that you would use this series to reveal uh, all the ways that that we are not actively following you and uh, being an apprentice of Jesus in our everyday, ordinary lives, and that you would uh, line our lives up with what we say we believe. And in doing that, that you would form us into compelling, head-turning, eye-popping people uh, to impact the people around us 
uh, that you would make us fishers of men, the, to capture the hearts and minds of those around us um, because of the type of people you're uh, creating us to be. Uh, we need your help in all of this because we most certainly can't do it by ourselves in any way, shape, or form. So please help us. Uh, empower us through your spirit. Uh, guide us and teach us. Love you. Amen.